Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 21, 2017 edition of Ask a Leader. For those of you who heard my interview last week with Teresa McQueen about sexual harassment at the workplace, you probably were wondering why the cutting-edged Uber was so retro about the way in which they managed female employees' concerns. I was wondering the same thing. Well, I think I'm going to excuse myself uh, from this intro here. I'm going to run outside and scream my frustration. Now on to the show. Rabbi Jonathan Klein, Executive Director of the Clergy and Laity United for Economic Justice, CLU, is our first guest in advance of CLU's Architects of Justice dinner event. It's going to be tomorrow, if you're listening to this live, at Temple Bat Shalom in Tustin, and they'll honor three local heroes, Father Quijero, Quijero Ferraz, former Irvine Mayor Council Member Beth Crom, and Jennifer Muir Betuin, the latter of whom have appeared uh, on Ask Leader quite uh, numerous times. The motto, making our community a place that embodies sacred resistance, signals clues intentions to address the vagaries of immigration policy in the U.S. Then, ever wonder if you're paying attention to the right things as the tsunami of regulation ensues on the national level? How many gratuitous superlatives can the American public take? What rhetoric on either side of the aisle in Congress are we missing? Are you ready for the President's State of the Union address this uh, next week? Well, Keith Topper, UCI political science professor and rhetoric professor, has a few antidotes and many insights. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Rabbi Jonathan Klein, Executive Director for CLUE, that's Clergy and Laity United for Economic Justice. Prior to his inordination in 1997 from Hebrew Union College, Rabbi Klein served congregations in Flagstaff, Arizona, and Rye, New York. He served three years as Director of Ketcher, this is the Reformed Jewish Movement's college outreach program and eight years as the rabbinic director of University of Southern California's Hillel. Rabbi Klein combined his experiences of busing, his family's financial struggle, and his brother's life with Down syndrome, uniting disparate experiences of his the garment workers shop steward grandmother Sophie Klein and his multi-generational ancestry into his work as a vaunted religious community organizer. Well done. Prior to his role at Clue, Rabbi Klein served on the staff of Progressive Jewish Alliance, now the Bend the Ark, and Rabbi Klein has grown Clue to its current 10-member team of faith-rooted organizers, we're not even counting all the volunteers, focused on the most vital economic justice issues throughout Los Angeles and Orange County. And we'll look for where there might be templates for everybody else to pick up and run with this in other regions. Under Rabbi Klein's leadership in 2015, Clue LA and Clue Orange County consolidate for a wider reach and broader issues area, addressing the boards of the 
American Civil Liberties Union of Southern California, and the anti-war Interfaith Communities United for Justice and Peace. As co-founder of Faith Action for Animals, Rabbi Klein organizes faith leaders to protect animals from human speciesism. His advocacy has had many outcomes around Southern California and in the Bay Area. Rabbi Klein also leads efforts to create a faith-based advocacy voice in cases of environmental injustices that disproportionately impact low-income communities. And we're going to just assure all of you, we're going to carry this again into the Wilmington neighborhood next week. Uh, Guest I'll announce at the end of the show. Rabbi Klein's here to talk about the latest as the federal machinery cranks up and incarceration infrastructure. Rabbi Klein joins us today from Los Angeles. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Rabbi Klein. Thank you very much for having me here. Well, on one banner during last week's Day Without Immigrants was this community center sign. I I think it was in Canada, so Americans don't get credit for this one. And I'll quote what it said on the, the community sign. It said, if you are more fortunate than others, build a longer table not a taller fence. So Clue's been setting quite the table for us all. Let's have you tell us what the charter is in dealing with providing a haven for those escaping violence and extreme poverty. Could you give us a background briefly and how Clue started setting this table to include everybody? Certainly. We, uh, we were formed in 1996 as a coalition of religious leaders that were very concerned at the time regarding a citywide ordinance that was vetoed by uh, the city of Los Angeles mayor at the time, uh, Richard Reardon, which would have provided living wages for workers. And out of the concern for that veto vote, we organized uh, religious leaders to push back against that veto and overturn it. And because Clue was able to successfully ensure good jobs for these workers, uh, there was a sense that we had a powerful voice as religious leaders to uh, to promote the well-being of all, and uh, out of that came our mission, which now is that we educate, organize, and mobilize the faith community to accompany workers and their families in their struggle for good jobs, dignity, and justice. And so we've expanded our reach beyond worker justice into economic justice for all, and that means the ability for people to live quality lives uh, wherever and however they wish to do so. And I'm going to add, I hasten to say that the closest regional committee organizing includes grassroots and community-based work. It's There's a representative in Santa Ana, Sandra Ortega, and yes. the Anaheim representative is Irene Ariano. And I will be sure to put those up on our the podcast summary so people can get their emails. I imagine you're making those available. They're available on the website, correct? So that's Absolutely. Okay. We, we came to a recognition that Los Angeles is the rights of workers in Los Angeles County uh, were in a better position, especially after uh, the minimum wage struggle that really changed that county fundamentally 
into a place where there was a pathway to $15 an hour. At the time, there was less so of a sense of that in Orange County, and we recognized that we deeply, deeply needed to bring the strengths and the quality of, uh, of organizing that we have in L.A. Yes. into the Orange County area and serve the 34 cities there as well. And we've been focused on northern cities of of Orange County with a recognition that there are um, a particularly larger percentage right. of low-wage workers in places like Anaheim and Garden Grove and uh, Santa Ana as well, of course. And the other areas, though, like you said, basically the downtown Los Angeles, Inglewood vicinity, Long Beach, San Fernando Valley. So, yes. oh, my gosh, are you you're sa- you're not driving? <laughs> No, no, not at all. I'm fine. I opened the door to hand off some bagels for our uh, for our Santa Monica meeting that we're about to have. Uh, oh. uh, but we are all over the place. Yes. Well, maybe they can get closer to your telephone and they can add a, a word or two. Well, you've got <laughs> an amazing brain trust of board of directors. They are most of them going to be coming to the the architects dinner. Are we going to meet them all? Maybe not all of them, but many of them will be there. And, you know, we're new in the Orange County area, but we're building a voice there that is a unique voice. We recognize that even if we do work in both Los Angeles and Orange counties, that we really can't necessarily say that, uh, you know, the, the life of people in Los Angeles and the life of people in Orange County should be identical. We actually want to protect the local nature of the work, and that's why Irene is from Anaheim, where she will be focused her work, as well as Fullerton, of course. And Sandra comes out of Stanton. So there's a deep commitment to the local that's a part of the clue identity as well. And that's where grassroots work gets the job done, that local connection. And as we talked with the a different uh, with uh, Steve Early about the Green Party majority on the Richmond, California City Council. It was the grassroots sort of one step after another that managed to uh, countervail the uh, enormous amount of money that the the one town company um, had was able to um, was trying to wield. So that your your model is just it's really impressive how you 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 did put it all together all your organizing DNA. <laughs> so, so um, <laughs> Well, look, we're at a stage in the history of this nation where we, yes. we have to spend an inordinate amount of time making sure that not only do we have a voice of conscience undergirding all of the work, but that our strongest brain trust, that is, the most strategic thinkers and um, empowered, enlightened individuals guide a movement. We draw from, and certainly in my tradition, it would be uh, the text that stands out for me is this idea of justice, justice shall you pursue. In the book of Deuteronomy, it says, tzedek, tzedek. It says justice, justice twice. And the rabbis say that justice with justice should one pursue, and that's why it's stated twice, to remind us that the means and the ends have to be one and the same. Okay. So our, we're committed to to ensuring that all of the vulnerable communities are protected in this current onslaught, but even before this election that I think turned a lot of attention to just how pernicious uh, the voices can be at times. There's also always been a sense that even with uh, with a less obvious racism or a less obvious hatred, 
that people are struggling in our society. Unfortunately, we see with this election what we think will be a turn to making things worse. But even if it had not happened, we knew that there were a lot of poor people uh, who depend on uh, the most basic necessities to get by. And so let's talk about this hefty array of programs, some specific initiatives underway here in Orange County that you'd like to tell us about. Maybe we could begin with the immigration justice, the resistance and sanctuary that Clue is taking. Sure. So Clue as a whole has framed our work as sacred resistance and sanctuary. Sacred because what we believe is that as institutions are uh, damaged or even destroyed, that there is still the sacred, there is still the, uh, the holy. That is, we as a society have made major steps, uh, taken major steps forward to protect the most vulnerable, and that is built on an infrastructure based on compassion. And we do not believe that it is anything less than sacred to protect those institutions. It's sort of in the same way that I think Native Americans will speak about the sacredness of the earth. So, too, we see the sacredness of our society itself, and we want to protect that. And so it's sacred resistance, resistance that is built on this notion that there are higher powers and there is greater meaning to life than just the uh, the politics of left and right. And so we are resisting the, uh, attentional, the intentional attack on those institutions. And we add the word sanctuary at the end because what we're recognizing is that sacred resistance in this era in Southern California with such a large Latino population in particular yes. and in Orange County with a particularly large Muslim community, the sanctuary means that we want to create safe spaces and safe zones for all people in our community. And that means intentional uh, efforts on the, light, on the part of congregations and on the community's part to protect those communities. So are your board of directors and are you building up an Orange County sort of board of directors line then? We have three members of our of our overall board yes. are based in uh, in which, Orange County. Which ones? And we hope to add uh, Steve Einstein is a board member, rabbi and uh, former uh, former uh, rabbi and now emeritus at a congregation in Fountain Valley. Sarah Halverson yes, Cano, who is um, actually a past uh, rece- recipient of our Architects of Justice Award and a UCC, United Church of Christ minister in Costa Mesa. Yes. And Glendana Shevlin, who is a worker uh, at Disney and someone who has um, definitely brought the struggle of Disney workers to the larger community. And I'm hoping that you might get a hold of uh, Imam Mustafa Kazvimi. I can just imagine him having a role in this in some way, if not directly, somebody he can anoint, appoint to to participate sure. in this. I I see him as a a man who just bridges so many different sort of approaches, thoughts, and all that. He's in one of the most open minds I think uh, I've you know met in in recent times. So it's a just a little uh, thought there. <laughs> That's wonderful, and. Um... 
we also know that uh, Muslimil Siddiqui is involved with our work, as are a number of Muslim leaders in Orange County. We do believe that as a baseline, we need to have a diverse organization that includes the traditional diversities as well as religious diversity. Right. And so that's a solemn commitment of our organization. Solemn. We, yeah. we are only committed to the economic justice issues in terms of our commitment, but that's a pretty wide net. What we don't do is encourage the force of wedge issues into our agenda. That is, we have a diverse board when it comes to issues that have been used to break the voice of religious communities, such as issues around abortion, uh, same-sex marriage, uh, Israel-Palestine. And what we say to our board members is, feel free to be who you are and fully fulfilled as individuals, but as a network that needs everyone to be supportive for the working poor that are struggling in our community, it's sort of a luxury for us to uh, pick and choose uh, board members, let's say, around those issues. Right. We would rather people just keep it open to all. Well done. For those of you who just joined us, yes, indeed, my guest is Rabbi Jonathan Klein. He's the executive director for CLU, that's Clergy and Laity United for Economic Justice, in advance of tomorrow evening's CLU Architects of Justice, which will honor some people. We'll talk about them in just a little bit. So you're offering trainings in the immigration. The president appears to have another executive order in the works for expedited deportations. How is Clue responding to this? Yes, there's actually been a memo already produced by okay. ICE, the Immigration Customs Enforcement Agency, from the very yeah. top leadership. Uh, that has uh, gone out to basically further erode the protections that vulnerable communities, uh, immigrant communities are experiencing. Uh, um, the, uh, the DACA and, and just in general undocumented community is um, deeply fearful, and we have been uh, privy to a number of conversations regarding uh, ICE raids, checkpoints, a lot of fear in the community. And we recognize that we are in some ways just back where we were in the early 2000s when there was a constant fear of, uh, of immigration raids and, and essentially terror for the immigrant community that we so deeply depend on for so much of the work that is happening in our community. Um, so our response to this is to build a web of sanctuary institutions. Okay. That is to say... We are training congregations to um, explore how to provide some level of sanctuary for immigrants uh, who may appear at their doorstep and are asking for, um, you know, the love and protection of the institution. And so that it is taking the form of trainings and uh, educational opportunities. We're going to do um, a more thorough training, I think, next week in Orange County Okay. Uh, to discuss this. We Tell also us. are working very closely with lawyers who are specifically oriented around immigration law, uh, including some UCI uh, students and I think faculty as well At who the law have school? committed to support this at the law school so, yes okay exactly. jennifer chacon's people i'm sure are 
on that with you. Well, can you tell yes. us uh, the Orange County training, where and when? Okay, the details are still being worked out, but okay. I'm happy to give any of your listeners uh, my uh, basic email and make sure that we send the information forward. Well, the if you can send it to me, I can... Place, yes, if you send pardon? it to... I'm sorry to speak over you, but you can send that to me too. Then I post that with the podcast summary so everybody can go back to that. It'll always be there when they look at here to the show. Okay. Okay. That would be were, great. Yes. We actually have a frame called Matthew 25. Okay. We, you know, I'm a rabbi, but part of our commitment is to the full diversity of religious traditions. And some of our traditions that are non-Catholic have used different language than sanctuary to describe the non-cooperation that essentially comes from the faith community. Matthew 25 addresses the uh, that that actual uh, chapter in the book of Matthew, which I will admit is not my forte as a rabbi to know so much about, but it is a welcoming text that essentially says that we will uh, protect you if you come to our doorsteps. And so evangelicals in particular are having this training taking place. I I believe it's next week, but it could also be on Thursday of this week. Oh. So I'll forward that information to you. It'll be a, a delight to post that so people can go to that. And you've, you've got a, a proven record with other previous measures in the, around the area. We want to give you a chance to talk about some of the people that you're going to be honoring. So maybe you could briefly tell us maybe where the which of the other measures that you were involved with before are going to carry forward, maybe lapsed into the, the sanctuary institutions you're building? Sure. I mean, we are first and foremost concerned around economics. And what that means to us is uh, ensuring that everyone has the ability to feed their family, have a shelter over their yes. heads, and feel a sense of safety and security in their communities. So we've been invested in questions around uh, the well-being of hotel workers and grocery workers in particular. In those areas, we've uh, shown a great deal of um, you know, a commitment to organizing and to mobilizing for uh, the workers in those industries. That's part of a recognition of the importance of each baby step toward building a more just and sacred society. And that means every individual needs to be uh, able to feed their families. So it, you can't do it necessarily with minimum wage increases all the time. Sometimes you have to work industry by industry. And so that has been a key part of why, for instance, we're honoring Father Arturo, who has been a real protector of the Disney workers, uh, a real advocate for uh, the, also the redistricting in Anaheim that led to uh, district elections, uh, which allowed us to finally ensure that uh, a not just a majority voice, but a minority voice is heard on that Anaheim City Council. Um, and that's key to that. We're honoring Jennifer Muir in part because as an organization committed to public sector, she is the head of the public sector unions and uh, OCEA, the yes. Orange County Employees Association. General manager now. And she's an extraordinary leader, a voice of conscience, and a wonderful um, proponent of the rights of working people. 
we as an organization have always been invested in the public sector uh, because we recognize that if we ever want to fix the problems of our society, we will depend on a functional and strong government as opposed to the prevailing perspective in uh, Washington now that government is somehow bad or evil. We see it as just the opposite. It's the only solution. And that's why we have an architecture of justice that we're going that we named our organiz- our event um, architects of justice and that's also why we're honoring Beth Crom who as a city leader in Irvine as a former mayor and council member has been unquestionably committed to building a functional government that uh, protects the most vulnerable and also allows us to innovate and build a better society indeed well the coalitions that Clue has developed supports their work and how each of these honorees reflects this. Is this a template that uh, are you exporting to other regions? Is this something that people are checking in with in other parts of the country? That So this, this kind of grassroots model has a, a broader reach? Yes, there are organizations like Clue all over the place. Uh, there's a national organization, and actually I was just named to the board of this organization called Interfaith Worker Justice. Okay. It is a Chicago-based organization, and they, too, have been deeply invested in not just worker uh, worker justice issues explicitly, particularly with unions, but also with uh, fighting wage theft, and uh, which is basically the practice of stealing wages from the people you employ. Yes. Uh, fighting that tooth and nail. I mean, at this point, they actually coined the term wage theft, and I'm very honored to serve on their board and to push out a stronger message around wage enforcement, increasing wages, you know, taking the bottom line and ensuring that it protects workers. Uh, And also, they are engaged in immigration work uh, increasingly, and I'm hoping to bring more of my commitment to that to this national organization. There are affiliate groups like Clue all over the place, uh, Los Angeles and, you know, California in general is one of the stronger areas, but there's groups in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, and in Florida. In the South, I was wondering, right, where there's so many right-to-work states now that are, they've codified that for maybe two generations at least, so, but yeah. in, in, in Florida at least, that's sort of the South, and sometimes it's not, but, the, but uh, any other right. Southern states that maybe? Uh, we have a network that includes Arizona, just thinking closer okay, by. Sure. I'm not I'm not as familiar yet, and I have a lot to learn about what's happening in Georgia and in other states further southeast. But I do know that the will is strong to build that, and yes. part of it is that religious leaders are thoroughly intersectional in their commitment to justice. They've They've learned yes. about the struggles of members of their congregations, and so there's a deep uh, drive to bring their values into uh, the well-being, into the the political sphere, and into the civic engagement of the communities. 
So wherever there are clergy who are enlightened about the, the struggles of their congregants, there will be groups that either come up spontaneously or are supported by various foundations and unions and other entities. Okay, there's a drum roll. There's a, a beat in the background, people imagine. So Clues Architects of Justice in Orange County, for those of you who are listening to this live today, it's going to be tomorrow, February 22nd. People gather at 6 and then the program begins at 7, goes till at least 9 o'clock. I'm sure a lot of networking and a lot more work gets done even after that point. Some have to retire back to L.A. But uh, So I always think people should still try to go, even if they haven't made a reservation. I know we should have done that a couple of weeks ago. I got my ticket sure. yesterday. So I know you won't turn Great. anybody away. Right, we won't. We Look, We this is about both fundraising and friendraising. We yes. really need to build a stronger community because we're in this all together. You know, um, a couple years ago when we heard the chant that we are the 99%, that sort of has uh, diminished in terms of the sound of the drumbeat of that. But at the same time, we need to remember that that is in fact true. We have a very small number of people, many of them now on the administration of the Trump uh, of Trump's presidency, who are calling shots that should not be given to them to call, quite honestly. Well, they're shaving the percentage, too. It's not even 1%. It's like 0.5% represented exactly. on the cabinet. I mean, this is such yeah. an extreme thing. I'm sorry, you were saying. No, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that they've done a good job. The other side has done a good job at making people in the middle feel like they need to protect the wealthiest side of that equation. But the reality is that even the people who are millionaires in California are not even protected yet from this uh, type of administration. They may go along with this type of hate-based organizing that uh, President Trump has pushed into the community, and especially his chief strategist, uh, Steve Bannon. But at the end of the day, none of us are safe from the types of blatant greed that is permeating his administration. Well, I wanted to finish the interview with letting people know where they can bring their attentive selves to participate in this dinner and find out more about what some of the local organizers for Clue are doing. It's Temple Beth Shalom at 2625 North Tustin Avenue in Santa Ana, and C-L-U-E-L-A is uh, the... Now, what is the best uh, the website? That's your... We, we are actually handle. not Clue LA anymore. We are now right. just Clue. Just Clue. Uh, and, and it is cluejustice.org, C-L-U-E, justice, J-U-S-T-I-C-E, dot org. And, and I think that's your Twitter that handle. So. The most important thing for people in your community to recognize, and those listening to this, is that even before uh, the presidency changed, all of us have had agency. We have had our commitment. Our, our core values did not change because the government changed. No. Orange County voted for Hillary Clinton, and uh, many, uh, many of the battles in this area 
though we are a nonprofit and therefore don't endorse candidates, we recognize that we have all that we need to keep fighting and to make sure that there is sacred resistance to the type of greed and um, and bigotry that is coming from this administration. The agency does not go away. We still have that in us. So our job is to unleash it into the uh, into the community and uh, take back what is rightfully ours as a society of 99 percenters. Okay, Rabbi Klein, I thank you for sharing with us your sustained and its crowning achievements. Thank you, Rabbi Klein, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Be well. Thank you. That was my guest, Rabbi Jonathan Klein, who is Executive Director of CLUE, Clergy and Lady Unite for Economic Justice, in advance of tomorrow's CLUE Architects of Just Dinner. We'll be right back after a short station break with Keith Topper, UCI political science professor. Don't go away. Laura Love, Amazing Grace. She's an, uh, a Portland area artist. That was a recording from, from some ways back. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Keith Topper, UCI political science professor, to take up the matter of the intersection of rhetoric and propaganda in the national leadership arena. We'll just knock that off before 10 today. If we do our job well, we might just anticipate the next slate of hand to be perpetrated on us all. Professor Topper specializes in political theory, American political thought, contemporary political and social theory, democratic theory, and philosophy of the social sciences, theories of power, theories of interpretation, languages, and politics. Now you know why he's here. His interdisciplinary work draws on history, philosophy, sociology, anthropology, and literary studies to attending to pressing issues of power inequality and exclusion. Among his publications, he's authored The Disorder of Political Theory and co-edited the Oxford Handbook of Rhetoric and Political Theory. He's published in a number of leading journals, Political Theory, American Political Science Review, Constellations, and Journal Politics. I'm sure much more, but that's that's how much I was able to track down for now. And as well as an article that intrigued me when I was first figuring out where we can put him in on the show was a, a, an article entitled Arendt and Bourdieu between word and deed. He earned his Bachelor's of Arts at UC Berkeley and his PhD at UCLA. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Keith Topper. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Claudia. Well, I'm so glad. Let's break down in detail the extent to which these are unprecedented times. The advances now we're, we're being shown uh, some artificial intelligence uh, tools uh, that are coming out. Uh, the Cambridge Analytical is being called out, and uh, it's it's such a sophisticated kind of instrument. I'd like for you to to comment on what Cambridge Analytica, with their algorithms, what they do with the whole political participation piece. It's a kind of a form of rhetoric. Um, yes, it is um, a distinctive form. Um, yes, for those of you who may not be familiar with Cambridge Analytica. Um, this was um, an organization that was um, you know, central to the um, Donald Trump campaign and also was central to the Brexit campaign. Um, and what they have you know, done is really attempt to you know, extend um, work that has been done over the past you know, decade, really, 
um, on big data um, and to and to um, attempt to amass enormous amounts of you know, information about you know, individual voters. Um, you know, much of it, much of it, um, much of it amassed through um, Facebook feeds, people liking certain, um, you know, certain things and not liking others, um, and to use that as a basis for um, for assembling a personality profile. Um, and once having assembled that personality profile, to have some sense of um, what kinds of issues appeal to um, particular voters, what sorts of things they seem to be. Um, you know, particularly uh, disturbed about or excited about, um, and then to use that information um, in order to micro-target those voters, that is to say, to, um, to, to produce messages that will oftentimes appeal in their, appear in their Facebook feeds that, um, you know, that will um, you know, address um, particular issues, particular concerns um, that um, those individual voters have. And the most pernicious of the aspects of this project are they could even go far as to dissuade somebody from participating in an election. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that, that floored me when I got to that point. Yes. Um, obviously, there are two different ways in which this um, can, be, um, can, can be used. I mean, on the one hand, it can be used to mobilize voters, right, by um, finding particular issues that they're especially um, animated by and then um, you know, driving those issues as a way of getting voters who might otherwise be disinclined to vote to come to the polls and you know, support um, a particular candidate. But you're absolutely right. The other way in which it can be used, and in some ways um, you know, the even more disturbing way in which it can be used, is by dissuading voters from going to the polls at all. Um, and um, you know, certainly we do know that in the 2016 election, um, that some you know, key um, demographic groups um, did not participate as widely as they had in 2012 or 2008. You know, in particular, there was a you know, significant drop off in African American voters, and um, it's you know it's clear that one of the things that um, you know Cambridge Analytica was doing was trying to um, identify um, you know pockets of African American voters, um, and then um, you know and then attempting to um, you know, to really foreground, um, foreground um, Hillary Clinton's position on particular issues, past statements that she had made, and so on and so forth, to discredit her in the eyes of those voters and therefore to um, dissuade them from going to the polls at all. So I'm going to be very bipartisan about this. The, the training our attention toward propaganda in Congress on both sides of the aisle, where where, what are you see, seeing playing out that we should be paying closer attention to and how the, the rhetoric has been applied? Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, certainly, you know, propaganda is not the, um, you know, the, the, the privilege or the monopoly of any single political party. Um, you know, both um, parties and, in fact, you know, parties um, in democracies across the world um, attempt to persuade voters. Um, and they attempt to persuade voters in a variety of different ways. One of the ways they attempt to persuade voters is by distorting issues in a variety of ways or by manipulating their emotions on particular, um, you know, particular issues or topics. And so we see this happening um, you know, with, you know, with both parties. Um, with respect to um, you know, the current state of play in Congress, um, probably the most important issue that will be you know, coming before Congress you know, later this issue is the um, question of the repeal and replacement of the Affordable Care Act. Um, that was um, 
an important, indeed central part of Donald Trump's campaign. And in fact, um, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act has been um, a central talking point of congressional Republicans you know, ever since it was first enacted in 2009. Now Republicans are actually in a different position um, because it's clear that um, roughly 20 million Americans who previously did not have health care now have health care. Um, projections are that you know in the absence of any, um, any repeal and replacement, that number will grow to close to 30 million over the next few years. Um, and, um, and so those, um, those persons who previously did not have health care now have health care, many of whom were, um, were important supporters of Trump. Uh, many, many of these people were part of the rural voters that turned out in large numbers to support him. Many of these people are from red states like Kentucky, for example. And so um, the question of how they're going to, to manage this is, is a central issue moving forward. Well, I just hasten to say red counties in blue states too yes the exactly. same kind of voting behavior yes so there are so it's affordable care it's, it's the the pivot away from the not the obstruction but the the repeal banter the offense against the the law it's now become a member of a lot of households so it's how the the pitch the propaganda shifts to well it's sort of like trying to find out which slices of this pie that are the most desirable, putting them in there. So that's that's what we're going to, we're going to talk about shiny objects. We're going to label <laughs> a shiny object versus what's really going on. So the shiny object would be where we're, there's an appeasement of perhaps a, a bone thrown about the uh, pre-existing condition, children staying on the plan, but the, the that's the shiny object, but we've got over the other area, we've got to keep our eyes trained on where, the, if it's going to be a block grant funding to the states, which will cap what each individual policyholder will have, what will be the, the actual uh, financing of each of those policies so that we're going to go through all the list of the shiny objects. So that's, um, that's what I want to say. And I noticed this morning uh, uh, there was a piece out of the New Yorker's reference and, and this sort of hangs over everything is that uh, from one Stanford study once formed impressions are remarkably perseverant so if the any political spokesperson is able to get that impression out there it's cemented and it's very hard to undo and will and so many disciplines now are out there speaking about this kind of hardwiring issue that makes it so difficult to interject like what the rabbi was talking about in the previous portion of the show is sort of this important kind of justice. But justice doesn't have a chance up against the shiny objects that we're going to be continuing to talk about. So there are the shiny objects that divert us from what national leadership is doing. Uh, from from versus the consequence. So there's the saturating of social media. There's the shiny object. We should really be careful that we're not. And I'm I'm going to say, uh, Professor Topper, that I, I was really offended when there was an on a sister public radio station. Well, well, Nina Toneberg was analyzing what was happening on uh, with the. I'm trying to think of which judicial issue it was, but. But right in the middle of her giving her analysis, she's taken a, a fresh tweet off of the Trump account. And I thought, no, you don't get to use that shiny object. So there's there's that. And the 
Another one is the unorthodox maneuverings at the Mar-a-Lago summit. So that's people are sort of drawn to the drama of who's getting access, who's getting pictures taken. But while that was going on, off there was consequence occurring elsewhere. So what um, what was the the split screen there of, away from the shiny object to what was really critical policy being made at the time? Right. No, and I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, you know, one of the difficulties in you know contending with the um, Trump phenomenon is that um, there are multiple things going on simultaneously, um, and in fact, um, you know, enormous amount of um, attention is directed to um, the unorthodox way in which um, you know Trump has, in his first month, um, governed. It works. It's their playbook. Well, that remains to be seen. I believe that the you know the 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 jury is still out on that question. Um, certainly, his public approval ratings have dropped precipitously over the course of his first month in office. Um, so, you know, that's at least one indicator that, um, at least with respect to the general public, um, you know, there's um, much concern and much skepticism. Well, the reason I say it's working is that the flooding of the optics, so many optics for us to process, and the flooding of gaffes and the, the uh, many norms that are being reversed here is that it is an, a concerted effort of the strategic communication leader, Steve Bannon, to keep, that's, that's the shiny object. Watch, we're just trying to sort out, is this, is this a break in the norm? And we're spinning our wheels on that, but over here, we just saw a rollback of Frank Dodd. Or we just saw a uh, the repeal of various oil and pe other petrochemical extractions uh, disclosures with foreign uh, companies. So that's what I'm saying: is that it the more unorthodox, the more distracting, the more destabilizing, the more other laws can be uh, or executive uh, directions can be taken that will set in motion perhaps laws being. Uh, well, let's say undone or new ones codified. Yeah, no, and I think that um, what we've seen with um, you know the emergence of Donald Trump is an enormous acceleration of the politics of personality in this country. I mean, that's something that we've um, that we've seen um, becoming increasingly central to American national politics and presidential politics for you know many decades. But it seems to have been um, raised to an entirely new level with um, with Trump's emergence first as a candidate and now as president. Um, one of the one of the consequences of that is that um, you know news coverage um, focuses you know so deeply upon his most recent tweet, upon you know particular things that he may have said or didn't say in um, press conferences, um, on. Um, you know, the inside, um, you know, activities within his administration and so on and so forth, um, you know, on, um, you know, the ways in which he has, um, you know, he has really blended, um, you know, his, um, you know, personal affairs with his position as president, that, you know, many really central um, policy issues are being ignored. Now that was something that was happening during the campaign. Um, you know, one of the um, you know interesting findings, you know, in the empirical literature is that during the entire campaign season, you know, only 15 minutes um, was devoted to um, you know to actual discussion of policy 
you know, among the major news networks. That's Down a from, shocking. From 40, which was the norm in the early 90s or something like that. And that's, that's a slight, that's two thirds gone. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web all over the world, for goodness sake, on KUCI.org. And we're also on Twitter at KUCI-FM, Instagram at KUCI-FM, Tumblr and Facebook. My guest is UCI political science and rhetoric professor Keith Topper, and we're talking about the intersection of propaganda and all the, <laughs> along with the shiny objects, with with actual policy making. Well, uh, so among other shiny objects, now it's not that it's not in, it's not it it there's resonating messages in it, but I don't see it as being a salient policy issue. But it it causes people to pull themselves off of consequential policy making. The there was one yesterday where the House was sanctioning killing of hibernating bear and wolf pups in House res, Joint Resolution 69. Well, it's sort of like throw that in there, and so people are indignant and disturbed, and they want to throw themselves in front of those immature mammals that are you know minding their own business. But you know we've got then. Pruitt is deciding what he's going to uh, do with, first he's going to dismantle morale at the EPA and then the, do the rest with Congress. And so it's sort of <laughs> that shiny object. I'm, we're going to tag it. Yeah, no, it's very much the politics of distraction. Um, and that um, has become, once again, a sort of central feature of um, both the Trump campaign and the first month of the Trump presidency. Um, it's, you know, it's very difficult um, for you know, most of us, even persons like myself who spend a better part of my life yes. um, trying to, um, you know, understand politics and reading about, um, you know, the political issues of the day. It's very difficult to um, remain focused upon, you know, these central issues and to not lose sight of it is. the extraordinary sort of proliferation of, you know, of other, um, you know, talking points, topics, you know, issues that come up and, um, and and emerge and sometimes have a life cycle of only a few days, but nonetheless, that life cycle of a few days distracts one from really focusing on the central issues of what is going on in political life. And so you're absolutely right about that. Um, and I think that um, you know, to the extent that you know Trump represents um, you know something you know new or distinctive in American politics, I think that sort of elevation of this politics of distraction to a new level is one of the ways in which. Um, you know, he really is a kind of unique figure. What I want us to do now is because I think it's important if so much of the scaffolding is being created for us by communication strategists like Steve Bannon, and, and we're hardwired to look at the less consequential, as it turns out, that I'd like to see if there's any way before we wrap this up in a few where we can be proactive where we can anticipate what's going on, and we'll have that opportunity in an exercise where how we can anticipate what Trump will say in the State of the Union address. It's not a strictly State of the Union, but it's a measure similar to that. The name only has changed. And then what we should expect and how we should prepare, because I know I, I'm going to anticipate that Steve Bannon is likely going to lift all the red meat he put in the inaugural address and serve large portions of it February 28th. What do you think? No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, 
I do think that um, you know one of the things which um, which um, Trump is contending with um, is a kind of legitimacy crisis. I mean, um, it's it is in fact the case that um, you know despite his claims of having um, you know won you know an overwhelming um, you know majority of the popular vote that, in fact, he did not win the popular vote, that um, Hillary Clinton won That's approximately three million object. more votes than Donald Trump did. Um, you know, the way in which he won the election, which is something we all understand, is because we do not have a single national election. We have 50 separate, you know, winner-take-all elections in which the candidate who receives either a majority or plurality of the vote within individual states receives all of the electoral votes in that state. Um, you know, that's actually an anti-democratic uh, mechanism um, that um, the founders themselves right. created. Uh, but, you know, Trump um, wants to and needs to position himself as a populist candidate, as a candidate who's speaking for the vast majority of the American public. And so it's a problem for him that he did not, in fact, win the popular vote and that he, in fact, received three, three million fewer votes than Hillary Clinton. And so... I think that what we will see is once again an attempt to sort of, you know, shore up the perception um, of himself um, as a figure who um, has, you know, the strong support of the vast majority of the American people. And but the inaugural address, he didn't try to do that at all. He just went straight to the campaign mode. And that's what I meant by the red meat. It was a galling kind of delivery. It wasn't, mm -hmm. there was no pretense of unification of any kind. So that's, I want what you could say to how we anticipate what kind of gall perpetrate <laughs> in in this this gesture of, that is allowed every single president every year? Sure. Um, no, I I I I think you're right. I think that he will continue to offer you know quote unquote red meat um, to his you know to his strong supporters. I think it'll be very interesting to see if there is you know any real sort of policy content to the address. Um, or whether it is, um, you know, entirely... Um, Strung superlatives. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So I, I, think you're, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, the address will you know, strongly um, be directed towards his strongest supporters. We've seen, um, you know, him essentially returning to campaign mode over the past week to, in fact, have, um, you know, campaign stops supported uh, by the 2020 Trump re-election campaign and so he's, you know, he's once again sort of focused on that mode. The question is whether we will see any, you know, any real focus on you know, policy issues or not, or whether we will continue to see the politics of distraction. And the shiny objects will be when the camera swings into the audience and we'll watch what the reactions are of the legislators and all the other dignitaries that are present. Well, I wish we had a lot more time. Political science, Keith Topper, thank you for coming to... Ask a Leader today and covering the rhetoric section with us and the shiny objects. It's my pleasure. And Thank you very hurry much. back. I want you back on. Well, that was my wrap, everybody. Next week's Southern California director of the High Speed Rail, Michelle Bain, is going to return to answer all my wide eyed questions about where that project is going north of us and if the goddesses are kind and they are i believe i've got the confirmation now that i'll be introducing to you a phenomenal activist alicia rivera who's organizing around those toxic refineries in the wilmington part of los angeles it's a continuation of what steve early spoke about earlier this month talk with you next week thank you everyone for listening 
No wonder the butters are shilling a pound See the rich farmer's daughters How they ride up and down You ask them the reason they cry Oh, alas, there's a war on in France And the cows have no grass Singing honesty's all out of fashion These are the rich 